Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 623, a best of episode with uh, my guest, Carrie Kenny Silver. This was recorded way back in 2012 before there were automobiles. I think we did this by kerosene if I in, in her log cabin that I helped her build. Uh, it's a great conversation about codependence, and I really enjoyed um, talking to her. Um, before I go any further, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've been using BetterHelp for six years. As I tell you guys, pretty much every week I love my therapist, Heidi. You know, we, we take our cars to the, uh, to the dealership or the auto shop to get them tuned up, but for some reason, sometimes we don't do that with our brains. You know, we got, a, we got an issue with our brains, and uh, we try to use just our brain to fix the brain. Well, I think it's really important to get uh, another perspective on what's going on with us, which is why I'm a big fan of therapy. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. That that helps a lot. Um, so yeah, without... Uh, Without any further, oh, I guess before uh, we get into that, just uh, mentioning uh, we have one more best of episode next week, and then we'll be back with brand new uh, episodes uh, in the beginning of uh, of January. And uh, I hope you survive the holidays. And uh, here's that episode with Carrie Kenny Silver. Most people, of course, know you from Reno nine one one and the state. People may also know you from uh, the sitcom Still Standing. Uh, what would be some other things that people might know you from? Are those the big three? Those are the big three. Um, we had another series, the same guys who did uh, Reno. We had a series called uh, Viva, Viva Variety. Variety that was has its cult following. Um, we I was in a band, a Riot Girl band in the late nineties, and we have uh, you know a pretty devoted little following for what, that what's the name of the band we were called cake like the hardest name in the world to say um but that had some strange success uh as a hobby took off and and was uh, a really fun thing to do for you, many years and you play a banjo and ukulele no i don't but i that's on my wikipedia page which someone someone mentioned to me recently the same question i said what where would you get that idea and they said it's on your wikipedia page i suspect tom lennon of sabotaging. And I'm leaving it because I think it's hilarious. I love that it also says avid. Like, I don't just play the banjo. I'm an expert. Um, I do play ukulele. I'm not great. I've played a couple little shows, but it's not something that is Wikipedia worthy for sure. That's hilarious. I know. <laughs> he, seem, he seems like a really uh, fun guy. He is. He's like my brother. I've known Tom the longest of any of the state guys. We met at uh, theater camp when we were 16 years old. Oh, really? And said, uh, yeah, I got together and said, oh, you know, I'm thinking of NYU, me too. What dorm should we go to? And 
and then uh, both joined the, the, we were called the new group in college, joined the new group together and became the state and became all these other things and ultimately Reno and that's lots great. of good stuff. Yeah. That's great. Well, yeah. um, uh, I I love this the stuff that you, that you do. There's a there's a vulnerability underneath all the stuff that you do that um, that I love, and it and it made me excited to to come interview you because I had the feeling well there won't be a a whole lot of walls to tear down. No, to, to- no, I lay it all out. I think, and uh, and especially when you consider that Reno was uh, improv, and. Um, that everything that you know came out of our mouths i mean we would we would joke in interviews with people you know they would say oh what a horrible person your character is and we would say you know unfortunately you know the apple doesn't fall too far from the character uh because you know you you can't help but your real life spilling out into it that's what it's about you know and and i think ultimately it gives it that detail that that people love. I I think so. I think people could. I would. We didn't expect that. We expected it to be a sketch comedy show, where we would do. You know, but the jokes would be people would relate to the sketches, and the crimes and the heist and the hijinks. And we were surprised when people started responding to these characters and caring and and wondering what was going to happen. You know, what are uh, the name of your character in Reno Nine One One? She was Trudy Weigel. And what are some similarities between you and her? Oh, there's so many. I mean, the lines, you know, get crossed between, you know, my mother and me and elementary school teachers. And, you know, it all filters through. Um, but I would always say that she was a bit of a heightened version of myself, you know, a bit of a hypochondriac, um, you know, never shy to quickly look for the medication that fixes anything that that's happening or catch it before it happens um are you a worrier i'm a huge worrier i'm an enormous worrier i'm a nail biter i i live i operate on fear and it was so freeing for me for that many years for six years actually it was eight years uh but six seasons and a film to be able to it was cathartic for me and sounds so silly, you know, in this, you know, world of fart jokes and, you know, crazy big underpants. But, um, you know, to be able to play this woman and just fully be all of my things that I don't like about myself. And then somehow she ended up lovable in a sort of despicable way. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the things I, I stress in this podcast is that we think the path to safety is by impressing people. And if anything, I think we wind up distancing ourselves from people because who enjoys a perfectionist? Right. But the people that touch us the most are the people that are vulnerable and are open about their flaws and don't try to pretend that they're something that they're not. Right. But there's a fine line, I find. And some one character trait that I don't like about myself is the, you know, I'm not just an open book. I will, you know, barrage you with vomitous details of things and disarm you so that you have to find your way into wanting to saying, no, it's okay. I like you, Carrie. It's okay. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I didn't tell you about that. I do this. I have this annoying trait. I know. It's okay. I still like you. Uh, Did I tell you? Uh, You know, I'm the kind of person that you say to me, you know, gosh, you look so great today. Wow. You look really pretty in that dress. And I can I have never in my time on this planet said thank you. I always will say, "Mm, you know what? You're very kind, but I'm, you know, three pounds away from my goal weight or um, I'm a strategic dresser or are you kidding this thing this was from Target I really wanted the the real version didn't want to spend the money so here I am you know I can't just be I can't just take it be okay with myself I have to kind of you know show up with here's the list of reasons why I'm not good enough. You you did it to me the first 30 seconds we met each other. You were texting your husband to, to let him know you, we were going to be in a room doing this. And 
you were typing faster on your phone than I've ever seen any human being. And I was like, that is amazing. And you immediately went, well, I make a lot of mistakes. You know, yes. it auto-corrects. And, yes, and I yes. was like, this is so perfect. Yes. This is so perfect. Uh, where would be a good place to start in, in, in your story? Uh, what, what, what was your home environment like growing up? My home environment, I was... You know, it was, it was. Where are you from? I, originally, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but we were only there for a minute. My father was in radio. That was too long, by the way. That was too long. I don't know. I haven't been no, back. It's, a, it's fine. I it's haven't fine been city. back. But, but, um, my whole family, my extended family is from Illinois, uh, Two small towns, Macomb, Illinois, and Pekin, Illinois. Southern Illinois University, yes. and then just outside of Peoria. Yes, exactly, exactly. Twenty minutes outside of Peoria, so um, that's where my extended family was, where my mom and dad both grew up. Uh, when my dad got into radio and he started having success very quickly, it, we moved to many, many places when I was little. We finally settled in Westport, Connecticut, when I was six years old, and then. I think it was around eight that my parents got divorced and my dad moved into the city. And so I would, I had, as far as geographically speaking. Are you sure you're not thinking of Mad Men? Yeah, actually, I haven't seen it. So embarrassingly it is like, enough, is it it's like It's like that? almost the identical uh, thing of what happened uh, Are you in serious? the first two cities. Well, they were, they were married. And uh, when, the, when the girl was around, uh, I guess, about eight years old, he, they got a divorce and he moved into the city. Oh, my. Well, I like to think it's cooler like I Love Lucy because they did live in Westport for a summer and then they went back to Manhattan. <laughs> but anyway, my, my, I had a – I had – I now look back and realize how lucky I was to I'm I'm comfortable pretty much anywhere in the sense of, you know, climate and people and, uh, you know, just the world around me because I spent my school days, school years in Westport, Connecticut, which was like a J. Crew ad. Um, Martha Stewart lived there and David Letterman and <clears throat> had wonderful public school system and it was safe and all that wonderful stuff. Spent the weekends in Manhattan with my dad and had that wonderful experience in the 70s and 80s. I mean, just, you know, village people and, you know, roller skating and whoop, whoop. Um, and then I spent my summers in Illinois in, you know, these all my cousins live on one street, my grandparents and aunts and uncles and everybody. And it was flashlight tag till after, you know, bedtime and running around and drive in movies and all that great stuff. So I didn't realize till I got older how great that is. Um, you really got to experience like a, a full sense of what the breadth of the United States has to offer. I really did. You, I don't think you could have hand picked if you could only pick three places um, a better situation. Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel really grateful for that. But, you know, certainly parents getting divorced. It's interesting. I have a six year old son now and I look at him and I think, my gosh, you know, this is who I was. This is the age I was when, you know, my world fell apart when, you know, we sat down at the kitchen table and my parents said, you know, I think it's my earliest memory. My parents saying, you know, we both love you the same, which just we're not going to be living in the same house anymore. We don't love each other the way we did. I I can tell you what the grain in the table looked like. You know, it just you might as well have dropped a bomb on the house. It probably would have been easier. Um, Do you remember like what you were thinking or feeling when when they told you that the air got knocked out of me and it stayed knocked out of me. Um, and is still knocked out of me in some ways. I'm not the kind of person, I don't walk around saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an adult survivor of anything. You know, we all have stuff. Everybody has stuff. I think the people that don't show stuff have more stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think, I agree. um, you know, I think this business of acting sort of shows you that about people. Um, but certainly it was, you know, earth shattering. And now I look at my son where if he doesn't have two matching socks, you know, or, or we, or the Lego piece doesn't match the one on the cover of the box and it's a catastrophe. And I think, what if I told him right now 
that everything that you know that is safety is now been taken away in it in in one millisecond. And I just think, how can that happen? How can you survive that? How can that be? And again, people have way worse experiences. But at that time in my life, I knew no worse experience. And I never knew that it was possible. I didn't know that existed. And it's funny because recently my son said to me, what does divorce mean? And it was strange um, because I... First, it surprised me that he didn't, that this is the first acknowledgement that he ever had of that word. I, I don't know what, why I thought he would have heard it before, but I thought, wow, he's just hearing that now and how wonderful that is. But also how sad it is at the same time, because in explaining to him, I said, it's never going to happen to mommy, mommy and daddy, but it does happen to some people. It happened to mommy as a kid. And he just was so confused like what do you mean your parents can you know live separate i mean people children live through deaths of parents and you know horrible abuse and 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 things like that but for me at that time you couldn't have have delivered more shocking news like if you had said that you know christmas would now be coming in the summer and santa's the devil and he'll eat your face off in the night i would have you know could have maybe made that register a little bit easier than your family is now being torn apart. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine what, what that's got to be like to, uh, to a kid because it's, it's your foundation and mm-hmm. kids don't know that. Yes, you're going to survive. Yes. Your experience will be your own. There'll be some pain, but you'll get through it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, well, I my can't imagine. kids don't know. And like I said, I get to watch my son now and through very different eyes thinking that was the age. And I think it is the end of the world if they don't have the chocolate cupcake, you know, when you come back around through the grocery store that was there 20 minutes ago. What does it mean to say to him your whole life as you know it is going to change and it will never be the same? Do you think you're better prepared for life though when you go through something like you did as a kid than oh, than sure. your son. Sure. I mean, I wouldn't say better. I just think, you know, everyone you you know, I hear all these sort of Oprah-esque stories of people, you know, thank God my whole family was killed in that car accident. I learned this lesson that I never would have learned and you just make choices, you know. You can learn from that. Um and you know, move on like people do from really horrific experiences, or you can sit around and make excuses all the time and say, well, I'm not capable of a real relationship because this happened. You know, I mean, I also see people with, you know, seemingly perfect childhoods turn out to be total, you know, incapable lunatics in relationships and in life and in business. And so, I think you just, I mean, for me, yeah, I've made it, I've made it a positive in a sense. I will, you know, my husband would pretty much have to stab me 30 times for me to, you know, leave him. I mean, I just can't imagine making that happen, you know, in turn to my son. So as the knife came in on the 29th stab, you would be saying, we can still make this work. (laughs) I don't know. I take that back. I take that back. But no, it would have to be, and it was horrific for my parents. It was, it was the absolute right thing for them to do. I would not, not hurt. No one was getting beaten. You know, I don't, I don't mean it like that. Sometimes, it just, yeah, people. It was people not that just. They were young. My mother's mother had passed away in a horrible accident, and it was unexpected, obviously. And they lived in a small farm town. They happened to be dating, and it's what you do. Someone needs to take care of this woman, this girl. And it was, you know, it was the right thing to do. And, you know, when I was engaged to my husband, my now husband, I remember my mom, she's so excited and, and, uh, they, my, my family loved him from the instant they met him. And I remember saying to my mom, how can you be so gung ho about marriage when the only experience in marriage you've ever had failed? You know, I, I would be worried for your daughter. And she said, my marriage wasn't a failure. It was a huge success. We met each other. We had you. And then we went our separate ways. What a gift. 
And I, I, you know, had never thought of it that way. I was also very lucky because my, again, looking back now as an adult and imagining how hard that must have been for my parents, for both of them, my mother and father never, ever, ever, ever in this 35 years, whatever it's been, has ever said a negative word about one another to me. Oh, ever. that's amazing. I mean, I, my husband leaves his socks in the living room and I'm, you know, giving a monologue to my son about why your father is, you know, should, you know, go to finishing school. <laughs> um, so I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine through all the, you know, paperwork and, you know, history, emotional history with them that, that they were, my mother would just say, your father loves you very much. And my dad would just say, your mother loves you very much. That's, that that's wonderful. And I could tell you, you know, as a, as a child of parents that had a terrible marriage and stayed together, uh, it's sometimes people need to get divorced. When my parents did yeah. finally separate, they never got divorced, but when they, I was 25, I think they said, we're you know, dad's moving out. We just need to live in separate places. I said, you should have done it years ago. You were relieved for yes, them. Yes, I, I, I was. Yeah, yeah. Because my dad knew he couldn't stay sober if they continued drinking. So, and the reason I bring that up is I, I don't want anybody that's ever had to get divorced that's listening to this feel like I'm a monster. No. You know, I, I no, sometimes I think it's best. No, uh, I mean, it, it is. But it's still unfortunate. I don't think you can know. I don't think you can know what kind of spouse you're going to be until you're married. I don't think you can know what kind of parent you're going to be until you have a child. All these things, we go in, many people go into them with the best of intentions. I don't believe that your parents got married thinking, wink, wink, one of these days, we are going to mess these kids up. Not, you know, high five. And then we're going to, you know, have explosive arguments. I mean, no one goes into it thinking that. Everyone goes into it with the best of intentions, at least for, for that one day. Um, so absolutely not, you know. I mean, people change. Disease happens. Um, depression happens. Financial hardship, financial destruction happens. It all happens. And you can't know and you can't judge. So that's why I don't judge people Here's a choice I judge. This is something I do judge. I don't, for me, it's funny that I say I, I don't, that I judge it and then I say for me, but I think it's confusing for a child. And when I say child, I don't say, don't mean 26. I mean six to watch their parent date after divorce. And I didn't have to see that either. To a bizarre degree, my mom just did not date after my parents got divorced. She had what she dated a minister for a hot minute, and then just sort of said, "What am I doing? I, I, I need to parent this. This kid is she needs me, and this is too confusing." So now I look at friends. I'm in that sort of age group. I think that you are where you know we've got young children, and all of a sudden now divorces are starting to happen. You know, you're like at the age where people start going steady. Then you're at the age where people start getting engaged and the age where people start getting married. Now we're at the age where people start having children and then start getting divorced, you know, and then we'll hit the uh, retirement and death. But anyway, <laughs> um, but, um, but when I look around at people, friends of mine that are, I just look so painful to me because I was in the shoes of those young children and thinking, oh, my God, it isn't bad enough that you just took my world away from me. But now you're going to add this enormous confusion on top of it. And that, I feel like, is something we have control over. So, you know, it's easy for me to say because I'm not in that situation. You yeah. know, talk to me in 30 years when my husband's exasperated and leaves me and I'm alone and wanting company. But... I can sit here in my ivory tower and say, I think that's wrong mm -hmm. for me. Uh, where would be uh, the next place to go to in your in your story? It's, it's, I would say, yeah, elementary school, I'll say I had a really hard time with uh, self-esteem. I was not an attractive kid. 
And I think I was enormously depressed. I had a major depression issues. My mom had me in therapy at a very young age. Thank God. I had, a you know, great parents who, you know, were on it. Um, but was, it the, was the depression there before your parents got divorced? I think it's chemical yeah. because I still, I still struggle with it. Do you take meds? I do. I take Prozac. Okay. I was on, I, I took Prozac since basically the week that it came out. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I still continue to take it. At this point, my doctor has said, you know, we've not raised your level since you were on it. How many 20 something years ago? I don't know that this is doing and I just am too afraid to mess with the system. But chances are it's, you know, things are better now. But but um, as a kid, you know, I I couldn't find. You know, I, I was noticing it at my and my son the other day we were at Disney World and he we bought him this little outfit this little he wanted this safari outfit and I realized I mean, he wanted it so bad more than Legos and all this other stuff so okay here's your, he said I need to put it on right now so, okay so we go in the bathroom we put it on and then he says call me sir and pretend like you don't know me he walks ahead of us and for four hours he's pretending like he works there and he's got a little accent and he's pointing and it brought back this unbelievable memory that I had completely blocked out, which was that anytime we would go somewhere, a grocery store in a different town, a road trip, a vacation, I would pretend like I was someone else. I remember this six, seven, eight years old. I remember pretending like I was blind. I remember pretending like I was deaf. I remember putting on accents. I wanted to be anyone but myself. Um, now, you know, big surprise that I'm an actress. You know, I, I enjoy getting out of my body. I enjoy the performance of it. But I think there is something to be said for me not wanting to be in my own body, not being happy with who I am. Yeah. So we're trying to encourage our son to turn it into performance and not just, you know, that's interesting you say that because my friends have a kid uh, who's, I think, four, and the thing he does is he says, um, I'm going to walk up ahead, and I want you to pretend that I'm a homeless child, and you've wow. taken me in. Wow. That's deep. They say some crazy things. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you didn't you didn't like being yourself? As a kid, elementary school was kind of tough. What happened was, yes, it was very tough. Um, it was very tough. There were some, you know, mean girls, that kind of thing. Um, I had one incident where I was, I just had been bullied for so long. And, and, and it, it was so uncomfortable for me that I had this one moment of clarity on the school bus where I thought, well, the only recourse I have here, because I'm the lowest on the totem pole, is there's one lower, and she's sitting right in front of me. So if I can get some kind of, we're all on the same team, wink from the rest of the bus, I might get through this okay. So I started touching the hair of the girl in front of me, who was just sort of the one rung under me. It's like the wino lying on the street, laughing at the wino that's down in the gutter, you mm -hmm. know? And she turned around and hit me so hard that my glasses flew and broke. And I ran off the bus crying. And that was the last time I tried that method. It didn't work for me. <laughs> the, well, maybe I'll be a bully too. And that will help. You know, it's so funny picturing you as oh, a bully. Just pathetic. It didn't, it didn't, luckily it didn't go well for me because who knows what I would be like now, but didn't go well. But about a year later, I was in class and there was, <laughs> this is embarrassing. There was, uh, we had a substitute teacher that day and her name was Miss Mills. And I don't know what got into me. I was probably seven years old, but I got up to the board when she wasn't looking and I erased the M and I put a P and the whole class laughed. I, uh, 
on her first name or her last name? Her last name changed it to Miss Pills. Like that's any yeah. sort of like so what? And like you're changing it to piss would have been. I don't know. <laughs> I, that to me was so funny, and I thought I I'm gonna and the laugh that I got changed my life, and I thought this is powerful. Now, granted, it was at someone else's expense. Luckily, it wasn't that clever and wasn't that hurtful. You know, she just was basically, you know, swatted me away and said, sit down. And, but I remember that feeling of, oh, this is a way to get power. This is a way to feel good about myself. People are laughing. It's a response and it's a positive response. And and I think from then on, I kind of knew I was going to be okay. And then, you know, fifth grade um, yearbook voted um class clown and then high school i was the voted the you know class speaker uh for graduation and that kind of thing and then and then i was okay from there in a sense you know just knowing that oh this is who i am this is where it's okay i can't play a sport i am complete i have two left i can't do dance i can't do cheerleading or any of these things i'm not pretty but i'm funny and there's there's a a joy in that for me in in having that reaction that shared experience and it's powerful it's very powerful it's powerful it's, it's uh it is its own drug it is yeah yeah but in some ways too it it can i think keep us emotionally uh stunted oh of course well it's a shield for me too i mean it's certainly the the way for me to distance myself from you you know if i'm if i'm not comfortable i can you know slide out with sarcasm and and uh, protect myself yeah you know, when we use humor as a, like our primary coping tool um it's it's so hard to let people know that we're scared or that were in pain. Not me because I, I, at the same time, I overshare. Yeah. Like I'll meet you at a cocktail party and I'll be like, hi, oh my gosh, here's the deal. But that's great then. I, I guess. I, I don't know. But I, I'm, a, I'm a definitely an open book. But, but um, you know, people do say to my husband all the time, genuinely will say to my husband, oh my gosh, you must have the most fun life ever. You Living with her must be, and it's just not. Like I'm just pretty boring i'm kind of whiny i'm a i'm pretty naggy i'm totally type a i'm always worried we're going to be late you know so it it's you know the humor is uh is not we're not always always yucking it up around right here. but it's good that you don't keep it all bottled up inside and i i don't know if if it's a classically female thing uh, but you know my wife is a warrior and she mm-hmm. she tends sometimes it'll 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 start to wear on me but in many ways, it, it makes our marriage work because a lot of times I can be thoughtless. And so right, it's right. nice to have the person who's always thinking and, and being uh, considerate. But yeah, sometimes it comes in an amount that, that that might tend to get on your nerves. Oh, I can completely take the joy away out of any situation with my worrying or my you know planning or my whatever. Um, and, and yet, it's the last thing that I want people to see in me. I, I, w- I want to be that kind of person that's like, oh, we'll just throw that together. Well, I could tell you there is nobody easier to spot than a worrier. They, they right. are so bad at, at hiding it. Right. Oh, uh, I, that, yeah, I'm glad. Cla- now you're worried. Now I'm worried. Now I'm worried that people are spotting it. I'm going to stay in my house for the next year. <laughs> so, what would be the next uh, seminal moment from, from your life that you can uh, think of? NYU, meeting the, the state guys. Um, it was pretty, um, unbelievable that, that we met. It, it feels, uh, like I, sometimes I can't believe that, that, uh, a bit of, you know, divine intervention just in my small career that I met this group of 10 guys and that we just became obsessed with one another. We, we were together every minute that we weren't in class and sometimes we'd skip class to be together and the same drive, the same many similar personalities of, you know, outcast-ish people, you know, no total lunatics. But, you know, some of us didn't have the best high school experiences and and weren't the most popular, but, but met each other and it was just electric. 
it must have felt pretty special to you too because uh, weren't you the only woman in the group i wasn't in college in college we had other women come in and out it was a you know it was a club in college but the core group really were we stuck and it it made more sense other people sort of meandered in and out by the end of college when we went to uh start um when we got our show on MTV this when we changed our name to the state um there were it was myself and 10 guys but you know it didn't uh i have a pretty i guess male um a sense of humor you know if that's what people call it i don't know i don't i'm not girly i i you know there there were guys in the group that were more girly than me if that's what you want to call it you know so um it wasn't ever an issue for us and it always kind of confused us when people would say you know are you going to add more girls or networks would say how about more color you know we would this is just who we are and you know it's working for us so it wasn't uh didn't seem any different to me i i want to try to um find any moments in your life that were particularly painful or embarrassing um or where there was some type of, of epiphany like your like your previous um ones what uh oh well i think my my probably next big epiphany moment was um i was engaged prior to my husband to, so i then i went and had a very busy great career you know i got to be in a rock band we signed with neil young we traveled all around and played the horde festival with him and played europe and you know had a we did three what, albums what kind of a guy is he he's very, a wonderful man a super caring beautiful man yeah he's very quiet and um you know it's like being in the presence of a prophet he's it's it's he's an amazing person and um just was kind of digging our sound and he started a new label off of warner brothers called vapor records and he said i want you to be my first band and so we were we had strange amount of success and and that was wonderful at the same time i was doing viva variety in the state and i was very busy i had a great you know time and dated people off and on and the same little dramas that everybody has. But uh, when we were doing Viva Variety, our third season, we decided to move it out here to Los Angeles because we all wanted to move, and that seemed like a good way to go with a show. So we brought it out here. And I met this guy out here who uh, was in recovery for crack addiction. And, you know, you can only imagine how excited my parents were that I've now <laughs> moved to Los Angeles and uh, I'm hanging out with a recovering crack addict who had, I believe it was only a year under his belt. And it wasn't marijuana. It wasn't wine coolers. It was crack cocaine. Um but I don't know. I thought, you know, this is exciting. I don't know. I don't know what I thought. I look back and I honest to God don't know what I thought. It manifested itself into a sad nightmare. And I watched this person relapse and I did the best I could to be for them, be there for them with my lack of understanding of this. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, 
NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. At one point, I was drinking so much and was with this person who was in and out of, you know, relapsing that I thought I had a problem with with alcohol. So I went into a support group with him, and which is, you know, hilarious to me now that, you know, you're going to go in there and help this person get better. <laughs> you know, right. I'll need my help to fix it. <laughs> and then I realized that I was basically in the wrong room. I needed a different support group, which was to stop, you know, supporting and fixing these and the other people. Enabling and obsessing. Completely, and- completely. And this, you know, this poor guy is like, Jesus, just let me have my addiction and go yeah. away. Um, but it got dramatic. It got, it got ugly. It got scary. Um, I had never seen that drug on a person before. I had never seen what that did to somebody. Can you, can you be more specific? Well, there was one, um, night when we were asleep in our house and, or I thought we were, I was asleep and the phone rang and it was in the middle of the night. And I thought, oh my God, something's happened to my mom. Cause who's going to call me at this hour? You know, I just knew it was an emergency. So I picked it up and it was him. And I, w- I was like, what? I thought he was laying in bed next to me. And he was saying, he had this dark, creepy voice on and he was saying, Sarah, Sarah, I see that you're in there sleeping with him, you whore. I'm going to come in there and kill you. Or, you know, something to that, some creepy, weird, I don't know if he said, I'm going to come in there and kill you, but he was losing his mind. And I said, where are you? And who's Sarah? And who is Sarah? And I look out the window and he's outside our window at our home talking through the window at me. Um, He's on a cell phone. He's on a cell phone. And then, you know, he, I I can't remember what happened that night. Believe it or not, I blocked out the rest. Um, Somehow he, you know, sobered up. And the next morning, bawling, crying, please take me back to rehab. You know, I need help and this will never happen again. And that was scary. That was really scary for me. Um, Just that, you know, the day before we were at dinner with my mom and, you know, at Island's restaurant having burgers and drinking lemonade. And then hours later, my life is, you know, upside down. Like a horror movie. Literally like a horror movie. And, um, I was never hurt physically. I know, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very, very, very lucky. Um, I later heard years later after I met my husband who is, who, who, you know, my friends and I laugh about it now, how wonderfully normal my husband is and where in the world, how in the world did I make that choice? Like, what was I thinking on that day? Um, so incredibly lucky so lucky. I mean, I was thinking of having children with this other person, you know, and I, now that I have a child with my husband, who's so delightfully normal and how hard it is when everything's going well, I just think, my God, I dodged a bullet. So, so what happened years later? Years later, I got a call from this person's mother and, uh, she said, I thought you should know, um, he's in jail. And he's he's in intensive care uh, in the in the prison. And I said, well, thank you. You know, I don't I don't know uh, what to say to you. You know, I, I'm sorry. And she said he um, he had been running down a street in the valley in Los Angeles with a baseball bat or a golf club. And he was bleeding and he was saying just mumbling things to himself. But they didn't know you know, cops picked him up and what's going on here? You know, did he hurt somebody? Did he hurt himself? Um, and he ended up in jail 
and he had a heart attack when he was in jail. This is a 30-something-year-old, beautiful man. I mean, just, you know. And he was an ex-athlete, professional athlete. Really? Yeah. And What was his sport? Baseball. He was a professional baseball pitcher. He played in the major leagues? He played for a minute in the major leagues. Yeah. Um, but his, his cocaine addiction, which started when he was apparently very young, very, very young, uh, from some coaches. Mm. Um, so, you know, just like... Did he die of the heart attack? He did not, he did not die. Um, and I still don't know uh, how he's doing. You know, I hear from people from that circle once every couple years i'll say have you seen him you know and they'll say yeah you know he he showed back up and he's he's pulling it together and then you know so i i you know pray for him sometimes that uh that i'll hear through the grapevine you know good news but it was it was very sad very scary um it was a side of the world and of people that I only saw on the news and um, I really feel for. How, so how did you eventually leave him? Was it, was it difficult? Was it easy? We had a dress. We had a wedding cake. We had a deposit on a place. And I was sitting on my cell phone in the car on the phone with my mother, shaking and crying and she had been begging me not to do this. And, and I, I just had a moment of clarity and I said, I can't do this. Will you help me go? I, I, I can't do this. And, uh, will you help me go get out? Okay. And, and, uh, she did. And I, I, you know, here I am with this several successful television shows under my belt, major motion pictures. I have three albums, tour with Neil Young, you know, I have this great life and, and here I am hiding at my mother's condominium, you know, just broken and in fear and, and, uh, it's really sad. And then I met my husband and I mean, no, no, not right then did I meet my husband. Then I, he was also hiding in your mother's he condominium. He was hiding. That's, it was my mother's boyfriend, which was perfect. <laughs> um, cause nobody had to move. Um, no, I I then had some time alone, thank God, and sort of got my bearings and. And had you been in a support group? At this, I had at this been. Okay. Yeah, I had been. Yeah, that was enormously vital to me. Those people, that world. I mean, what what are some things that you that you learned there? Because I haven't talked to many people uh, on on this show uh, who struggle with enabling or being drawn to people who have too much chaos or drama. You know what I learned? I learned something that I need to remind myself every day in my perfectly normal, mundane, everyday life that I have now, which is mind your own damn business. And I do it all the time. It's a fine line when you have a child because you you don't mind your business at the right time and they fall off the edge of a bridge or they get hit by a car or they choke. So it's a it's it's a tough struggle when you ha- when you're a parent because you can't completely mind your own business, um, but you know certainly uh, y- y- the the because you really are responsible for somebody's life, right? I mean, you know, when when you're in these this program and and you're talking about you know let this person go, detach with love, let them have their experience. You can't, you have no control over them. That doesn't apply when you have a child, you know, it doesn't. Um, If I took my newborn and just, you know, let him be, you know, that that's, I would be in prison and we would be nowhere. But um, he would be raised by wonderful, supportive wolves. Wolves. Yeah. Which, you know, he may be better off at this point. I don't know. But as far as like a relationship with, with other adults, um, you know, you, you talked about detaching with love, um, letting them have their journey. Uh, I learned something when I first got sober. You know, you meet a lot of people whose wreckage is awful mm-hmm. and they need money. Mm-hmm. And 
I wanted to save people, and I was working oh, in television yeah. then, and I had money, so I started lending all of these people oh, how money. smart. And people were like, you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. But I had to learn my own lesson. Mm-hmm. I had to lend out too much money, not get paid back, mm-hmm. and see a lot of these people relapse because their bottom had been made easier. Sure. I had softened the pain of their bad decisions. Well, you kept them from their ultimate bottom. I did. Yeah, I did. You're doing and- a disservice, and that's hard to believe. When a person you love is looking in you in the eye and saying, please, please, I need this money. I have, please, I have no place to stay. Where am I going to eat? Yes. What am I going to eat? And for you to have to look somebody in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I love you. No. That is, I'm here emotionally for you. Y- I love and you. And not even. And to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And there's even a line to that. That's, you know, Herculean. And I wasn't always good at it, clearly. I mean, my boundaries were all over the place, but that's mostly what I learned there. And it applies so beautifully to the rest of life. In fact, I'm glad we're having this conversation today because it's, it reminds me, you know, there's, there's all kinds of fun little sayings, you know, um, that, uh, that apply that are not just about addiction. They're about everyday life, you know, just mind your own business and, and let go of the result, you know, talk about, you know, worrying and, you know, I have no control. I have no control of you. I have no control of tomorrow. I have no control of two minutes from now. Um, I just show up. I do the next indicated thing that's expected of me that I said I would show up for. And I leave the results up, up to the universe. It's all we can all do. Um, and it is, it is hard to know when to, to help somebody or when to detach Mm -hmm. and, could you could you elaborate on when you know somebody you should help somebody or when that help is actually hurting them? Well, uh, I, where, where yeah. that help where it looks like help but it's really not. Yeah. I mean, I don't um have the solid, you know, be all end all answer for that. My experience has been if I am helping someone to and I have to get to rehab or to um, make it to a meeting on time or to, um, you know, I, you don't pay people's bills. Uh, that's not helping. You, you don't um, clean up their messes. You don't apologize to people for them. It's just like having a child. You know, if I jump in every time my son has an issue on the playground, I am not giving him the opportunity to learn how to walk through that situation. I'm doing him a disservice. And just, you know, um, addicts have, you know, we all do, but, but, you know, moments of, of immaturity where they don't know because they, they've never walked (laughs) through those those things before. You're very kind. Yes. They're children. But we all do. We all do in all, in many different situations. But, but addicts, it's, it is, um, a strung together, uh, life of immature moments and they can't see the immaturity in that. And, right. And, but by drawing those boundaries, you are helping them awaken to the fact. Oh, well, the, uh, the other thing is, you know, that it often comes with a large ego and I'm certainly guilty of that. You know, I mean, that's part of it was I can't say that, you know, I, I certainly have an addictive personality. There's no doubt about it. I'm not drawing the line in the sand and saying me and them, you, me and you, because it's not that way. And its own drug, helping people being a, sure. you know, a codependent oh, is I, certainly its own drug. I've got a billion of them, you know, I, they're, they're, some are larger than others, you know, I think, I think a lot of people do to a certain extent. Um, it's, it's certainly in my blood. It's, I'm capable of, you know, there's, there's reasons I haven't tried certain drugs in my, in my college days because I have a feeling, you know, there's that little thing in the back of my head that goes, you're, you could be one of those guys, you know? Um, but you know, I don't, I don't judge in that sense and say, you know, you people have this problem. I have that problem, you know, and yeah, being a fixer, being a planner, being a warrior, all of those things, those are, those are addictive behaviors and can, and are, you know, can be as well. And there can be an arrogance to that too, because hugely it's disgusting. And at times when, you know, that's, that's why it's important to me to point that out because it's just, it's so gross, you know, um, I, I am guilty of that thing, which they often say about addicts, which is, 
um, big ego, no self-esteem. I mean, I, you know, I'm the first one to say like, oh, you know, why, why didn't I get in, you know, or, or, you know, oh, I wish I, you know, I wish I could have been invited to that party, you know, but I get why they didn't invite me. I'm probably not good enough, you know, but how dare they, you know, what is wrong with you that you, it's like, ugh, it's so exhausting. It's just another way of making it all about you. Even if you're the piece of shit in it, it's still all about you. And the fixing of people has its own arrogance in that they can't make it without me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it was fun. I'm sure it was fun for the, old timers to watch me come in and go through that and then once I sort of got that it was fun for me to watch new people come in and just think you know this you know wait till you realize what what it is that you're saying it's it's yeah. pretty fun and and you and they have this exasperated kind of quality to their vomiting up what their life is as if nobody has any idea right and you just want to go Sit down, shut the fuck up, right? Keep your ears open. You're gonna hear your story, right? 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 I had there was an old timer who told me that. Just sit down and shut up and listen. That's it. And I remember thinking, how? What is? How dare you? I have a story to my <laughs> story, you know. And meanwhile, then you do. You sit down and you shut up. And then the woman next to you, you know, her husband, you know, killed their baby, you know, in a, in a drunken accident. So it's like. You know, the arrogance is, it's part of it all. It circles around all of the, you know, it's a family disease. It's a family disease. Do you want to do a a fear off? Yeah, sure. Or are are there any other moments that I'm skipping over? Any other seminal moments? No, I mean, then my life gets pretty boring and wonderful, you know. I mean, you'll hear in my fears what my my current, you know, fear world is like, but... And uh, the way we do is we, we just kind of bounce back and forth with these. Okay. We don't uh, necessarily have to comment on each other's unless, okay. unless you feel like you, you want to. Okay. Um, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, about an hour before they call rap on a film or TV show that I'm shooting, I begin to fear that I will never work again. <laughs> uh, I fear I will die feeling ignored, in pain, uninsured and invisible that's not dramatic <laughs> I, love uninsured. I, sh- I should really read that with my the back of my hand against my forehead <laughs> i fear idle time i dream of having nothing to do when i'm working but the second i'm finished i'm terrified into numbness and inactivity it's amazing how the brain mm-hmm. will just mm-hmm. make you fucked no matter what your situation is <laughs> yes. unbelievable uh, I'm afraid I'm making this podcast too serious and self-important, and it's turning more people off than it's attracting. I'm afraid of snakes. I think they're the devil. My reaction to them, even just a photo of them, is primal. When I was a kid and had my first babysitter, my mom said, there's a surprise waiting for you on your bed. My dad jokingly leaned over and whispered, it's a snake. And it scared the hell out of me for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow, that's funny. Uh, I'm afraid that some of my favorite guests will never come back to be guests again. Mm, I'm afraid of not being invited to things. I'm more afraid when I have been invited. Really? Yes. That I won't be a good guest. I won't live up to the image of the good guest. Wow. They'll, they'll, re- they'll regret having invited me. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm afraid uh, people are going through our garbage, stealing our identities, and all the damage has been done. I just haven't found out yet. Mm -hmm. It's true. It is happening. (laughs) You don't have to fear that. It's real. I fear the day that my son gets his heart broken for the first time. I fear that I may hunt the girl down and publicly humiliate her. (laughs) Uh, I am going to go to some listeners' uh, fears now, uh, since I've done probably a couple hundred of my fears on, on this show, and I don't want to repeat any. Um, these are the fears of Jonah. He writes, uh, I'm afraid that I'm squandering my potential and being selfish instead of helping the world to be a better place. Hmm. I think if you just have an awareness of that, you're, you're in the, a lot of people don't ever feel, even have an yeah. awareness of that. 
Um, I fear being arrested for something I didn't do. I've never stolen anything in my life, and yet every time I walk through a sensor at a store, I can't breathe. I'm sure I've put something in my pocket without thinking or left something on from the dressing room. That is so common. <laughs> I go through the same thing. I-, I can breathe when I do it, but I think that same thing, and a lot of times I'll walk out of the store extra slow just to like <laughs> yes. kind of say, I'm not. if I had stolen something, would I be walking I this slow i do the same thing make eye contact Mm -hmm. yeah uh jonah writes i'm afraid that uh i'm wasting my energy by typing these fears (laughs) i have a fear of closed in spaces i am claustrophobic add water to the equation and it's less of a fear and more of an obsessed terror my idea of hell a submarine oh god uh, I'm afraid that uh, I'm a narcissistic egomaniac, and that's the reason I'm typing these fears in the hopes that they will be broadcasted on the Internet. I'm afraid sometimes that I'm not good at what I do, uh, that the acting police are going to tap me on my shoulder one day and say, excuse me, ma'am, you'll need to return that costume and wig. We've found you out. Nice <laughs> try. Uh, Jonah writes, I'm afraid that I've destroyed my brain with pot. I have one more. I'm afraid for the day that my son finds out I'm just a regular, powerless human being like everyone else. Oh, that's beautiful. I think I think we'll we'll end the fear off on on that one and go right into uh, to loves. Unless there was a fear that you wanted to expand on or talk about. No, I'm afraid that's it. <laughs> uh, I am going to. I've got a couple of. Why don't you Why don't you kick it off with the uh, with your first love? Well, you can't start it off without saying that you love your child and your husband okay. but um that's you know not all that interesting but it's true um but i uh i'll go right into even though i'm a baker i love anything with processed sugar nerds circus peanuts cotton candy anything that could last through the apocalypse and live longer than a cockroach <laughs> um i love uh golfing with my friend jimmy pardo and us making fun of each other and how bad we are I love falling asleep to the sound of other people talking in the next room. It reminds me of being a little girl in the summer in Illinois, listening to my grandparents and aunts and uncles playing board games after my bedtime. It feels safe. Uh, I love when my friend Mike Schmidt is on a roll telling a story. I love rainy days where I can stay in bed with my entire family. Uh, I love when uh, my friend Pat Francis says something that is both stupid and genius at the same time. I love New York City. It's where my heart is. Sometimes I watch the live webcams of New York streets and imagine I still live there. I imagine what I'd be wearing that day, what I'd eat that night, and what I would do the next day. Uh, I love when I think I have to return something, but then just by changing a, a, a switch, it works, and I don't have to. I love Christmas, and I am a Christmas fanatic. I listen to Christmas music in my car in August when I'm feeling depressed. I love having lunch with a friend. Uh, I love looking into people's windows at night, not in a creepy sexual way, but in a very mundane, daily, slice-of-life kind of way. I love walking down the street and seeing snapshots of people's lives. It's like a short play. Someone pouring coffee, changing the channel on the TV, reading a magazine. I love the movie Rear Window for this reason. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I love watching my wife uh, enjoy a new dish that makes her happy. I love the smell of plastic, shower curtains, three-ring binders, fresh really? new plastic. Oh, my God. I can't <laughs> stand the smell of new plastic. Well, certain, like new car plastic is okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. You're specific yeah. about your pet. Yeah. Uh, I love when my dogs look like they're daydreaming. <laughs> I love the sound of my son's laugh. It's the best sound in the world to me. I love ice cream sandwiches when they're just starting to melt. mm Okay, this is my last one. I love watching my son discover things for the first time and how his face lights up. The first time he saw a tiny umbrella in a drink, it was like Santa had just walked into the room. It reminds me to appreciate the little things. That's beautiful. Uh, And I'll finish with this one. Uh, I love making something in my workshop. And just as my energy starts to sag, my iPod plays some salsa by Hector Laveau. (laughs) And I start shuffling my feet and laughing at myself at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Carrie Kenny Silver, thank you so much for being uh, yeah. a guest on this and for opening up and um, uh, 
is there anything you want to uh, to plug for the six people that listen to this show? Oh, um, what do I have Actually, next? I have a movie. I'm going to be on Chelsea lately soon, but I'm I am every few weeks. But mm-hmm. I have a movie coming out in October called Fun Size. Cool. Yeah, Anna Gasteyer and I play lesbian moms. It's a riot. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Many thanks to Carrie Kenny Silver for uh, for a great episode and being so uh, so nice as to uh, come on my podcast. Having no fucking idea who I am. Um, before I take it out with a couple of surveys, want to remind you guys that there are uh, different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us non financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating. That uh, boosts our ranking brings more people to the show and you can support it by uh spreading the word on social media uh, i've noticed uh, quite a few of you have been uh saying nice things about it on facebook and we've been getting some traffic from that and that makes me really happy so thank you very much i appreciate that um i think that's about it i am going to read a survey. This was filled out by uh, a guy who's straight. He's in his 40s. He calls himself any man. He was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Has never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. He writes, I can't think of anything. What sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? He writes, I often fantasize about kidnapping young women who are about 18 to 21 who are wearing swimsuits or some clothing where their legs are exposed. And these fantasies, I usually carry them off in my arms, usually from the side of a pool or sometimes I carry them off from their beds or just after they've come out of a room. Uh, I inform them that I am kidnapping them and I will pick them up and carry them. As I'm carrying them away, I ask their name and tell them how they feel great in my arms and how nice their legs feel. They go willingly and usually ask me where I'm taking them. I tell them I'm carrying them off to make love to them and a woman as beautiful as they are and wearing what they are wearing needs to be carried. Of course, I'd never actually act on these fantasies unless, of course, I was with the woman who was into role playing as I was back in college. She enjoyed acting out kidnapping fantasies just as I describe above. Uh, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, yes, my wife knows. During sex, I'll even tell her how I kidnap her how I'd kidnap her. It really turns her on, and she'll even act like she's tied up, although we never have actually done that. Uh, I don't know. That just makes me smile, that this guy has... He has thoughts that were not, I'm sure, planted uh, in there by himself. That's He didn't choose that that's what turns him on. That's what turns him on, and he's found a healthy way to deal with it. He shares it with another person, and it sounds like that brings them closer together. And um, and if his wife ever decides that she doesn't like to do that, he can pick her up and carry her to the basement and lock her down there. I don't like how that turned out. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it out with a. Uh, this is from our our happiest moments survey. And this was filled out by a guy who calls himself David R. Johnson, and then he puts in parentheses, fake. Um, Share one or two of your happiest moments. He writes, finally accepting that life is finite, that someday I'll die. Just not having the worry that I haven't lived enough, done enough good, has changed my life. Everything is better. Not thinking it's a race to be the best. Also, finally finding out that high school really didn't matter in life. And knowing that I'm the only one that remembers my most embarrassing moments, everybody is way too involved in their lives to even remember that place. Joy. Well, I hope you uh, enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, As I mentioned, we'll be back in January with brand new episodes. And uh, the holidays, good luck to you. God bless. Keep your mouth shut. Choose your battles. And maybe sometimes you need to speak up, but, uh, oh boy, is there anything worse than a, than a holiday trying to change somebody's closely held opinions about politics or something else? Yeah, just pound that eggnog and look at your watch. Uh, if you're out there, you're feeling stuck, just never forget you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Ho, ho, ho. 
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.